Hi Corp Hackers, before we start, just to let you know that we had some technical difficulties during the recording with both our guest, Claire and Celine, but we soldiered on and had a wonderful discussion. Unfortunately, we lost Celine right at the end, which is why she doesn't say goodbye. Also, as you know, on Court Hackers, we love the idea of collaboration, and I recently had a lovely chat with Scott Homan. Scott is an ex-Jehovah's Witness and former guest on the podcast, where he spoke then about his amazing documentary film called Witness Underground, which is about an indie record label run by then practicing Jehovah's Witnesses, and it also documents their journey out of the group. So Scott has a podcast which you can access through his website at witnessunderground.com, along with lots of other great content. You know, Scott is one of the coolest people I know, and he's so great to listen to. He's just kicking off season two of the podcast, so you should definitely check that out. Now, Scott has a passion for promoting the positive effects of art and creativity after leaving a cult, and so he's inviting applications for a grant of a thousand US dollars from ex Jehovah's Witness Creatives for a project they might need some investment in. So, if you're interested in applying, you can do so at the website witnessunderground.com. That's witnessunderground, all one word, dot com. Uh, a panel then will decide who receives the award. And to be clear, cult hackers, neither me or Celine has any involvement other than thinking it's a brilliant idea and spreading the word about it. So if you have any questions, head over to witnessunderground.com or contact Scott directly. And you'll also hear a short message from the man himself midway through this episode. And finally, before we go to the interview, a reminder that we're going to be having our monthly video chat with the patrons this Sunday, the 29th of January. So if you are a patron, you can join us. And if you're not, why not consider becoming one? There's only one price point, and that's $1.50 a month. And then you get all the benefits, including the chat and a exclusive weekly short podcast, which is just for the patrons. Okay, housekeeping done. Let's get into the podcast and our discussion with the councillor, Claire Allison Hands. Hello, Court Hackers. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Celine, a media graduate and have an interest in cults. And I'm Stephen Mather, uh, organisational psychologist, also interested in cults, and was in one for 30 mm -hmm. years. Um, so welcome to the podcast, everybody. We're really excited today because we've got a great guest. We're going to welcome Claire Allison Hams. Um, Claire is a second generation ex-Jehovah's Witness and a counsellor. So we're really looking forward to this discussion. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Stephen and Celine. Lovely to be here with you. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, okay, so tell us a little bit about yourself then, Claire. Um, so you're second generation. What's your story? Yes, I am second generation. So my parents converted to become Jehovah's Witnesses when they were young adults, and they met and married after they'd become involved separately and I was born into the family much much later on and um, I stayed in the organization for quite some time and I left as a um, 30 something year old and that was during my training to become a counsellor that I actually decided made the decision to walk away 
and, and woke up to the fact that it is cult. Mm. So are those two things linked then? Do you think your studies um, as a counsellor helped make that decision? I do on reflection believe that's the case, yes. I think that having to have mandatory therapy whilst I was in training, it was extremely powerful in giving me that space to be able to reflect on the journey that I was on of, first of all, feeling quite guilty and more being about my own feelings of failure and then very quickly realizing that actually there was a lot more to it than that and actually it wasn't a personal fault that this was part of the manipulation and the control that I'd been under and so having that space on a weekly basis to work through some of my thoughts and feelings whilst I was also learning an awful lot about how people develop how they grow and I did a period of training with an organization that works for children in schools and I learned about safeguarding, I learned about child development. And so all of that was coming at a time when I was making sense of my own self. And it was very powerful and very helpful in giving me that opportunity to grow alongside the grief of realising what I was having to give up and leave behind. Mm. You, um, doing your studies as well, was that something that... Um, how, how did people respond to you studying to be a counsellor while you were still sort of in or straddling that in, in, out kind of period of time? Yeah, I didn't have very much feedback, actually. It's interesting. The feedback I did have was somewhat negative. Um, mm. I think people thought I was having to do it, that it was the requirement of something to do with my work initially and they sort of made throwaway comments about oh it's so frustrating having to do all these things isn't it you know that mm. that don't, you know, not really you know we've got the truth so why do we need to be doing these things I remember one of those conversations and then mm. quite interesting to then see their slightly puzzled um expression when I then explained that nurture was something I was choosing to do and I was putting a lot of effort into it and they didn't mm-hmm. quite know what to do with that so it was, yeah it was curious to see Mm-hmm. it's really interesting isn't it um it, it's funny you know we we often talk about jehovah's witnesses um discouraging higher education and discouraging people using counselors and mental health professionals and so on and um you know from their point of view you can understand why they do it because of course it treat it it enables you to think for yourself and to um to, to start to break away from that uh that sort of mentality that you've been raised in yeah well, why did yeah. you want to do counseling then Claire was that as obviously you wanted to do that itself for a reason yes I'd always had an interest then I did one of these um questionnaire things that you do at school mm. the two things that had come out that I might be good at were either a minister of religion or a counselor and <laughs> 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 um, I was a pioneer when I was witness which means knocking indoors for at least 70 hours a month and I did that for almost 10 years so I think I ticked that box off and then I was ready mm-hmm. to go into the other part yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. so I worked for a major cancer hospital and um, I worked actually running part of the, the counselling department so I got a really good insight um, sort of understanding of what counselling was, the different types of therapy that was on offer. And I used to watch the patients come in and they were quite weighed down, obviously, from treatment or from the mm. diagnosis news. 
And I'd see them go behind the closed door of the therapy room and come out an hour later, just looking a little bit lighter, like things were more manageable. And eventually I decided I want to, I want to do the training. I want to find out what goes on inside the room. Mm. So that's, that's really interesting. That's a, that's a path we haven't really come across before. I, I don't think Celine. Um, so that's a really interesting way of, of how you exited out, out of that organization. So tell us a little bit about how difficult that was for you. Um, Obviously, it's hard for everybody who has been born into something like that. What what were the difficulties leaving Jehovah's Witnesses? I did experience ostracism, even though I wasn't formally disfellowshipped from the religion, as many people are. And there's this other group of us that choose to walk away and for whatever reason, don't get sanctions, formal sanctions mm. put upon us. Um, so I was quite careful and I was able to leave without them doing that. There was a number of us that left at the same time, so I think that they didn't really know quite what was going on, and I think there was a little bit of fear on their side, from the organisation side, about what was really going on. Were we collaborating? We weren't. We were just all on our journey at the same time, which is interesting. But, yeah, so I did leave, and I was ostracised because I think they were cautious about what I might be um, I wouldn't say capable of, but what I was speaking about, what I might be speaking about, I had suspicion. And so I was left alone to a greater or lesser degree. Although the first year that I left, because I had so many connections and you know, good friends in the organisation, I would get a message pretty much every week from somebody saying that they could, they were devastated to hear that I'd stopped associating they wanted me to come back and then as the little to and fro progress they realized that wasn't going to happen that was quite set in my decision and so then I got blocked you know mm. on whatever form and that would happen pretty much every week and I'd go to my therapist and I'd you know say, oh this has happened this week and she got used to hearing story after story of me just slowly but surely being cut off by other people that had been a big part of my life kind of literally a thousand cuts <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, mm. in hindsight, you know, I could have done it differently. Um, but my feeling always was that I didn't want to end friendships. I didn't want to be the one that yeah. said, I will not communicate with you. Mm. And I wanted to leave that decision to them. And although it was painful for a while, I still feel I maintain the fact that my door is always still open. Uh, and that felt, for me, that personally felt better. But we all do things differently, I know, when we, when we leave. Um, what I did find really useful was um, that I, because I was um, angry about things, as we often all do go through that process of feeling the anger, of realising what we were part of being quite damaging in many, many respects. And I felt particularly strongly towards survivors of uh, abuse in the organisation, whether that was domestic abuse, violence or sexual abuse. And so I did make quite strong contacts with some organisations that were supporting survivors, like NAPAC, the National Association for People Abused in Childhood. They knew a lot about the complexities of the Jehovah's Witness organisation. And because I was sort of reaching out, I think I, I somehow got known about in the XJW community, uh, which I didn't know existed at that point. I had no idea. And I got a phone call from somebody, it was actually Nick French, who is actually quite um, 
involved and has done some amazing activism work and awareness raising work and continues to this day working very hard behind the scenes and Nick rang me and said you know just curious who are you you know what's your story (laughs) and um so then I was invited into the UK support group and I think as I've watched many times that feeling of having other people that get your story was just so grounding for me it was Mm. so um stabilizing at a time when things felt very turbulent and so I was able to then go into my which I was developing I guess through training as a counsellor my sort of support role and so quite quickly I became involved in being an admin on the group and supporting others and that was incredibly um, sort of a pivotal moment for me I suppose to be able to start to put my energies into something that was really helpful to others again you know a big part of what drives me and motivates me in life so um yeah very important and I, I you know I have a big um belief that the support the UK the worldwide community of uh, XJWs is very powerful in, in the healing recovery yeah tell, tell us a, a bit more about that group if if you don't mind um obviously if if um uh, if people can um, connect to it and and so on, if people need help, what what's the uh, what's the group called again, Claire? So the group is not discoverable on social media. Uh, you okay. do have to be invited into it, and it's a really good thing that you've asked that actually, because mm. the reason that we have to have it like that is really to protect the identities of those that still have family members that might still be in. They might still be making their exit journey. So there has to be a real sensitivity around protecting people's identity and not putting them into situations that reveal their desire to leave the cult before they're ready. So it's it's really interesting. How does it work? It does sometimes take people a while to find, I think, some of the support community um, contact points I suppose you could call them so there is a website called XJW support there is a contact form on there and actually people can send in something that comes through to myself and several others email addresses and we will then respond to them uh, usually with a phone call find out what their situation is and if we are confident that they are um, going through the exit journey that they're not an active toe witness then we will invite them to be part of the group but we do gatekeep quite carefully to make mm. sure that that group remains as safe as it possibly can. Obviously we can't guarantee complete safety, sure. but we do our best to. Um, so there's a number of contact points. There's also um, some meetup group contacts there for if people want to join Zoom sessions. And sometimes we have new, uh, newly out XGWs that will pop up in the Zoom monthly Zoom meetings mm. that are facilitated by members of the group. Um, and yeah, and then the main group where people may say, oh, actually, you know, there's a number of my friends I know that have left the organisation mm-hmm. and I, I will invite them in and then we'll do the checks. Um, so it oh. seems to work quite well. In the show notes, you can always put that signposting or explanation in there if someone, um, so people can read that and understand how it is they can try and approach the group if they're interested. Very much important, yeah, to have yeah. some place to be able to connect with it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hello listeners, my name is Casey, host of the Cult Vault podcast, a long-format interview-based show that focuses on cults, high-demand groups, captive organisations and more. 
Each week, I interview a different cult survivor who brings a story of coercion and exploitation along with their own fight for freedom. With nearly 200 survivor interviews from all over the world, you can also find deep dives into infamous cults, interviews with leading experts in the field, and understand more about how cults exist all around us and none of us are safe. Each month, I feature a different author on the show who has penned a compelling memoir about their cult experiences, which we discuss at length on the show, with copies of their books available to listeners. You will never be short of insightful and moving content here at the Cult Vault Podcast, available on all major platforms. Check out witnessunderground.com about artists who escaped cults. We have three different forms of journalism, from a film, a YouTube series, and a podcast. The podcast is very active. We're launching season two, January 2023. And the story link on that site talks about the body of work that we've already created and what we're continuing to create, the mission, the intention, and our artist grant application where you can submit to take home $1,000 to work on your art project on the topic. The only criteria would be that you have a great idea, that our panel awards but also that you have some association with this particular religion, Jehovah's Witnesses, at some point in your life. doesn't matter how long it's been. And we also have a blog, a regular writing series. The press has been really interesting. When we did our film festival run in 2021, we got a lot of press. We are on a lot of radio programs and a lot of podcasts. And you can see all of that content there, which is really exciting. And it's fun to have launched this new website. And the art page will have shortly all of our products we have for sale from t-shirts to the music from all the bands in the film to artists who are actively making new music that we've highlighted on the podcast and films that you can watch from other activists. It's an exciting time to be launching the grant and the new site and the film. That should be out in April. We're launching it. The target date for release is ahead of the Jehovah's Witness holiday that they call the Memorial and the Jewish people call the Passover event. So April 4th is the actual date, and we are shooting for ahead of that for a public release, ideally on ad-based services such as Tubi for you to watch. So stay, stay ahead of that, pay attention to the website, subscribe on the website, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and search on YouTube for Witness Underground Podcast. That's where we've been launching everything. We have just launched on Buzzsprout as a distribution, so we should be on Spotify shortly. Thank you so much for following. Like, subscribe, share as much as you can. And let any artist that you know who has any affiliation with this religion, that they can apply for the $1,000 grant that we are putting together as a goodwill to the community and an exciting way to bring new art to the community that is part of the healing process. Thanks for sticking around and check out witnessunderground.com. What are some of the problems that people have when they leave? I mean, obviously, you know, we can make assumptions that we know this because we are ourselves, we've been through that, but I guess um, everybody's journey is different. So what are some of the difficulties that people have when they leave? Such diversity, like you said, we are all individuals. Mm. And one of the biggest ones is, is fear of loss of community. So whether that be family or the community of, of the cult, which is like a family, um, which was, the case for me, I'd lost family members that had died. So the community for me became very much my family, particularly because when you're born in, you grow up with these people. You've known them. They, they hold all of your, your memories and all of your key life events. 
Um, so that's a big thing, ostracism and shunning. And I think you've interviewed Dr. Heather Ransom, who mm. has written her PhD research around the powerful effects uh, of ostracism and shunning, just how yeah. it can be physically painful. So often people, you know, very um, feeling very low in their mental health, their emotional state, um, confused perhaps. Uh, and also feeling maybe some sense of, I'm going to say guilt and shame around having been part of this organisation that's caused great harm. So I've had conversations with former elders that have reached out and said, you know, I'm really sitting with a feeling of shame that I didn't do more to seek out or to effect change. At the same time, knowing that they really couldn't do that, they couldn't really effect change in such a powerful cultic dynamic. But um, a lot of that difficult emotion that has to be worked through. Um, and then there's other complexities around, again, connections with whether it's children, different family members, grandparents not being able to see their grandchildren, vice versa, um, often very relational pieces that people are struggling with. Yeah, that's 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 very interesting. Actually, um, this might be a bit off piste, I guess. Um I, but I get. I'd like to get your opinion about this, actually, Claire. Um, what, when you said about elders who or people who may have been elders, and obviously they they will have had to or been expected to make certain decisions about people, um, even disfellowship people and things like that. And, and in a way, that can be a barrier to people leaving. I think because it's like it's another reason why you want to live in this denial because you feel like I, I cannot possibly question this. If I question it, then I have to deal with these things that I've done in the past. And, and I also wonder about um, this narrative about wasted life, you know, and, and sometimes I think ex Jehovah's witnesses talk about this quite a lot. You know, we we feel like we've, we've had wasted years and we've had a wasted life um, in a way I think we need to help people who might be sort of on the edge thinking about where they want to remain Jehovah's Witnesses. We need to find a way, an off-ramp, I suppose, for them that doesn't demand that they completely think of their whole life as wasted. You know, Otherwise, the older they get, the more impossible it is that they're going to leave. Uh, it's just something I've been thinking about, and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how we, we can do that for people, but I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that, uh, Claire. I think we need to understand the exit process more. There is there is a big um, gap in the literature in terms of actual research around how how do we yeah how do we support people that are going through this process of of grappling the cognitive dissonance. We talk mm. about that a lot, don't we, in the yeah. ex community that you have to get through the cognitive dissonance and then you have to start to think about your identity very much about who am I when you've been born in and then you leave um, it is something I feel so strongly that there needs to be more research that I myself am, am on a research journey to join some of these other academics that have done some amazing research already and um, there's a number now a growing number and it's interesting actually it's women JWs yeah. that are spearheading that work and I think that, you know, doesn't, it shouldn't go unnoticed that actually, you know, we're able to do 
very important pieces of work that we weren't perhaps able to do in the organisation. But I do think there needs to be research around that whole process of um, the exit journey and what do you do with some of those such powerful feelings, as you said, the feelings of wasted years, as if you have to then live at a high speed mm-hmm. to catch up with doing things that you very likely would have done at a much earlier stage in your life, uh, but weren't able to because these opportunities were not allowed, they were not offered. Perhaps you didn't even realise that you were capable, you had the skills, and now you've left, and this growing understanding of self. And so that question is, it's very, very powerful. Who am I? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Celine, have you got any thoughts on that? Yeah, I was just thinking about in terms of to use the sort of JW term, like the work, what's the work that I guess the worldly people could be doing, if you know what I mean. So in terms of, for instance, like, should we be putting certain barriers as a society in place to to stop opportunity being stolen if you know what I mean so should we be making it that children have to go and take ed- um have to have a certain level of education and have to um sit exams and be given the opportunity to do that so for instance my, some of my concerns now is that with a growing amount of um homeschooled JW children they don't they have even less qualifications than um you know, um, that you came out still at least having GCSEs or the equivalent of because it, you still were going to school. But, you know, I'm concerned about the children that are taken out of school um, and they never even have an expectation to sit exams. And that means, yeah, again, more stuff is being put on the back burner, potentially, if you leave. So do you think we should be putting in place kind of protective barriers where these things do have to be taken? Definitely. I think these are really important pieces that are being recognised that are harmful in very subtle, insidious ways. They don't always get picked up on because you've got to understand the organisation to really see the harm in a long-term basis. As you say, if you're homeschooled, Mm -hmm. what is being taught to you? Um, If you're already in a very sort of isolated community, okay, Jehovah's are not living in communes, they're not taken out of the world in that sense but it's the milieu control it's the the mental idea that you are not part of this world you're not part of um, what everybody else is is doing so I think we need to be having conversations at levels where change can be affected and there are groups of XGWs that are working very hard at all different levels and meeting with people in government, meeting with lawmakers, meeting with authorities, research committees that can put actual um, evidential pieces of information out there to show that we need to be thinking about this and we need to be putting protective factors in in all sorts of areas of life around mm. the way that Jehovah's Witnesses um, you know, live their lives and raise their children. Yeah, yeah, I think... That's that's the thing that I guess one of the I, I think we've brought it up a, a lot recently, but one of the burning <laughs> points of the podcast for, for myself at least is yeah, the um what what do we do yeah to protect the the children that are being raised currently in these situations from cases of like, you know, blood and medical to education and safeguarding 
um, you know, because obviously that is something that's a big concern with um, within the JW group and groups like. Um, so yeah, I guess it's some. It's just yeah. How do we how do we fix these things? <laughs> what pro- yeah. and and how far do you go before you get in trouble? <laughs> yeah, and that's always had to be thought about. Yeah, what pushback will be received, mm. but it does need to still be yeah. be talked yeah. about. Um, they, their narrative is out there. They're calling on people to deal with their narrative. So mm. equally, um, we need to be. Um, bold in reaching out to the people who do have the power and ability to safeguard, as you said, so so, so important to use that word because it is safeguarding. The children are like, you know, your dad and myself, we were born in, we didn't have any power or control, but now we are on the other side and we can do things that can help Mm. other young people who are growing up in the organisation. Um, so, so tell us a little bit about um, the research that you're uh, you started, um, if you don't mind, Claire. So you've you've started doing a PhD, I I believe. Um, fantastic! Congratulations! Thank that you. It is very, <laughs> yeah, it's early days, and I didn't imagine I would be doing it. I feel like I'm following in you know the footsteps of, of some amazing pieces of research that have already been done. I've got a lot to live up to, but I do really feel that um, there is more to be looked at around born and raised in second generation and identity. Keep going back to this idea of identity because it is a question that's asked: Who am I? when we leave you know I've, I've no I've no longer got that shaping my life decisions but you know I have got aspects of my personality that I can now investigate enhance work with and it's how do some people something I'm particularly curious about is how did some people find the agency and the drive to go off and do some things um, that they might not have felt they were able to do previously. But also for others that find it incredibly difficult to overcome the real anger and regret and sadness around what's lost and what they were part of, how can we understand all of the different perspectives of the exit journey and what is important to have in place? What are the the core conditions that are needed to start to engage in a recovery process? Because it's obviously an internal thing that you have to drive yourself. And so my perspective is obviously from a therapeutic angle, what, what aspect does that play? If people do engage in therapy, will we find out that that's actually um, helpful? I think there have been a number of studies done already around that and what is recognised is that there needs to be a greater understanding of the complexity of working in a therapeutic sense with people that have left high control organisations, cults um, or even relationships because it's so fear-based and we need to understand really how to be empathic in a way that is, is meaningful and um, mm-hmm. We can't, there isn't enough uh, counsellors that have had lived experience. I think that's, that's what we need to acknowledge. So, you know, I've been trying to find ways to make 
uh, information available to those that want to have therapy with somebody that's had some lived experience in some way or worked with a large number of XJWs or have got some understanding of spiritual abuse and post-cut recovery. But there aren't enough for the, the number of people that want that. So it is interesting that uh, organisations like the British Association Cancer and Psychotherapy, they did actually have a training course on Friday around spiritual abuse and my PhD supervisor actually presented and um, talking about what do we need to start to think about it as a therapeutic profession so that other counsellors that are finding clients coming into their consulting room who've gone through these experiences can start to have the training that they need to understand how to work with these clients because we're talking about trauma, recovery from trauma. Um, that's so important to understand the effects of trauma. That sounds like really interesting work. So that's that's the um, the focus of your research then, the, this question of identity and how people make that journey, really understand. I think the more we understand that, of course, the, the better um, the therapy can be, can't it? Because we can understand what 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 you you need to be doing as a as a professional to to help that person through. And I guess that's going to intersect with um, individual differences. So people will have certain traits that um, are kind of not, not necessarily anything to do with the religion or the cult they were raised in, you know, um, so that people will respond differently just because they they happen to have slightly different genetic factors, I suppose, as well. So these these things will... It's a, it's a complex picture, isn't it? Um, how how do you go about doing that research? Is are you going to be looking at um, case studies, or how how are you going to? What, what are the sort of methods that you're going to be using? Good question. So I'm really looking into the different form of qualitative research yeah. methodologies that are available at the moment, and trying to work out what will give a real both in-depth and an overview. I think there have to sort of be those two perspectives because, as you say, we want to get data from a wide number of experiences of exit journey to be able to make some meaningful, pick up the meaningful themes. Um, so, yes, I'm grappling with that at the moment. I'm really at the early stages. Um, but what I did attend last week was a workshop which was bringing together early researchers who are looking at spiritual abuse in some way, shape or form um, and methodologies of, of how we do that. And also acknowledging working with vulnerable participants. So not just thinking about how do we look after the participant, because obviously when you go to the ethics committee, when you're going to do research, they want to know that you've thought about that, that that's a part of your research design that you're not going to be triggering people and just leaving them to yeah. you know recover or not from your your research so obviously that's hugely important but also conversely researchers as well are we also thinking about the effects of um, those that have lived experience that are researching perhaps their own vulnerable group are we thinking about uh, keeping ourselves safe so that we can continue to go through the research process and actually come out with something meaningful that that is done in a safe way at the end of it so I'm thinking about all of those perspectives because mm. we talked about that quite a lot at this workshop and I think it's great to know that there's a community of growing 
uh, awareness for researchers that um, we, you know, we need to also have a community to talk about the work that we're doing so that we can, that we can share that, those experiences and start to fill some of these gaps in research. So I don't know exactly yet, but I certainly would like to get as much data as possible um, within my capabilities to, to hear from as many people about their stories. Uh, narrative rich really yeah, oh absolutely it's that's a very good point you make about the effect it has on the researcher um it's something that when i was doing my my master's my dissertation i i i mean obviously you always have to as you say the ethics um requirements are that you you address that so you have to do it but it you, well i felt it was a kind of slightly meaningless act really i had to get this thing done you know i was worried about ma making sure that my participants were okay but as far as i'm concerned I, why should i worry about me you know but it did affect me more than i expected not in a particularly negative way but it definitely got me into a place that i hadn't been for quite a long time so yeah it's surprising isn't it how um how it can still affect you and of course that then will influence or could influence um the analysis that you're doing of, of, of the stories, Absolutely. couldn't it? So that, that can be yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Just making sure people are able to like, you know, keep pursuing the work if they want to. Um, mm. If you, if you push yourself too hard or like if the, if the work you're doing is having a negative impact on you, you could be doing brilliant work, but if it's, if it's affecting you badly, then you can't keep going. Right. And so we want to be able to make sure people <laughs> can do it without feeling, you know, put back in the bad place um yeah, yeah. so true yeah mm. it's interesting Stephen you do say that in your master's research you did notice the effect mm. it had on you and I think mm. that's been talked about a lot more now I think there's perhaps been a feeling that you know the researcher should be robust and just get on with it they've got a job to do but actually we're human we're humans and when you've had lived experience it's obviously going to have some impact on you when you hear other stories quite you know, difficult stories people will be bringing as well with recovery from cultic dynamics. Mm -hmm. I suppose we're starting to talk more generally as a, about emotional labour and, you know, that kind of impact from all different kind of jobs that require that and research by no means should be excluded from that. It's definitely going to be an aspect of what you're doing. Um, mm. So it makes 100% sense to me that it, that should be an element that we're talking about. You know, if 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 we talk about safety in the workplace, that it's your job. You need to consider how to keep you safe too, right? Yeah, so true. Uh, I think for you as well, um, people like yourself, um, Claire, who you know, it's your profession as well to listen to people who um, have been through these experiences. I guess some, at least, of your clients are ex-members of groups so you'll be listening to their stories and uh, obviously showing empathy and um, that will remind you of some of the things that you've gone through and then you've got this research as well so I'm starting to get a bit worried about you now Claire um, how do you <laughs> how are you going to make sure that you're okay because that that could be really you know oh my goodness you must have to take a break at some point and recharge your batteries absolutely yes and that's something we do need to remember that we're all human and we have an ethical duty to keep ourselves well in order to be, be able to do the work well. So, yes, it's being able to switch off and engage in that 
re- recovery process myself. You know, I am I am an ex-Jehovah's Witness myself, so I am on that journey of working out what I really would like to have been spending my time doing when I wasn't, <laughs> and when I was calling on people, trying to preach to them. So, yeah, building my community is really important to me. I like mm. people, I like being with people, mm. and, you know, just enjoying life, enjoying all that life has to give. We, we do live, as we know, in a very complex world. And if we constantly feed ourselves on, you know, the, the heaviness of it all, as perhaps we did as Jehovah's Witnesses, then we were always looking for a sign that there was going to be a catastrophe because that might mean that the you know the end of this system and the beginning of Armageddon was coming and that was there was this macabre gleefulness about catastrophe and so although I do like to keep an eye on what's going on in the world I am very mindful that I need to have a happy life I need to enjoy my life and and not become too consumed with that feeling of I've got to catch up you know, and, and racing because that very much is there for me as well I, I will say I, I really identify with that but um, just enjoy just really enjoy the downtime so you can just switch off uh, especially from things like um, technology you know we're very attached to technology and here we are using technology for a really positive way but we need yeah. to switch off from it sometimes. oh it's a double-edged sword as they say isn't it absolutely um yeah uh, well that's that, that's really good advice i think and um something that i need to take um yeah so uh, all good stuff um claire mm-hmm. so we're, we're you you've got limited time with us this afternoon mm-hmm. so yeah let's uh, let's bring the, the the conversation to a close um by sort of asking about the future you've obviously got a lot on your your um you're doing your uh, phd your your counseling um you obviously want to make happy life um what are your hopes for the future um what, what do you what would you like to see over the next sort of five or ten years in this space this sort of x uh cult space and and how what would be progress for you in in this sort of space that's a really good question actually and i'm wondering have i thought that far ahead <laughs> I, i'd like to see many more resources available um, in some way. Um, I think we are seeing some powerful conversations going on in the media because people are writing books and, you know, we've had a number of um, XJWs putting some amazing stuff out there. So I think... Often women, again, the the, the women who are writing about their experiences Mm, um, mm. just absolutely fascinating yeah sorry i interrupted you there but just just it's really it's really true it's interesting isn't it that we're Mm. finding our voice so Mm. i think continuing to find a voice professionally i think you know we would like to be putting more and more into the literature because the witnesses you know they are working hard from their side to refute xjw narratives they they know what we're doing and they don't want us to do it. And so I think we want to keep growing in solidarity. We have been aware in the last year or so of how, well, I wasn't aware when I came into the ex-community that things can get tricky between other ex-JWs. In some ways, that can be a bit of a vying for space. Um, that can be tricky too. Group dynamics are always tricky. 
Um, but I think what we really want to see is, you know, safer spaces growing all the time so that people have got a faith neutral place to talk about recovery rather than we were going off and going to make our decisions about what we believe in now, what we want to do with our life. And that's fine. But, you know, having these safer spaces to be able to talk about the recovery journey, to feel like we've got a community of our own that is looking out for one another. And I think if that just keeps growing and growing and we can put resources out there for recovery and we can have conversations at higher levels um, with government about safeguarding, I think that would be just amazing. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Claire. It's been absolutely brilliant. So excited about your your work that you're going to be doing, uh, whether you are doing now, um, amongst all the other things that you're doing. So thank you so much for that work. Uh, we really appreciate it. And uh, thank you for joining us today, Claire Alison Hams. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cult Hackers is an Evil Sheep production. 